0: Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Welcome back, one and all, to the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Eras, and not as usual I am solo today uh, Joe boot and Nathan Oblack are both traveling uh, for uh, for work or vacation but uh, fear not we haven't uh, we haven't been left without a remnant here I've got our guest today dr. P Andrew Sandlin fellow of the Ezra Institute for public theology and cultural philosophy dr. Sandlin welcome it's a, it's a pleasure to have you Thank you so much, Ryan. It's a pleasure to work closely
1: with Ezra.
0: Well, we really, we really appreciate you uh, being here. I, uh, I didn't mention, but I will mention once more for our, our listeners that uh, this year's H. Evan Runner International Academy is going to be happening June 5th to 15th in Golden, British Columbia, Andrew Sandlin is going to be one of our core faculty members at this year's Runner Academy. And just to uh, circle back to this, Andrew is, as I mentioned, Fellow for Public Theology and Cultural Philosophy at the Ezra Institute. He blogs at DocSandlin.com. You can follow him on all the major social platforms. And Andrew is also President and Founder of the Center for Cultural Leadership in California. And Andrew, he he began the uh, the Center for Cultural Leadership, in his words, out of a conviction that it's only transformed Christians who can transform the present anti-Christian culture of the West. Now, Andrew, with uh, with your permission, I'd just like to to park on that statement. Have you talk a little bit about uh, the work of CCL, the convictions that uh, that were behind its founding, but. Uh, in that uh, in that opening statements about in that opening statement I should say about transformed Christians who are the only ones who are able to transform our present anti Christian culture uh, there are there are some important assumptions that are implicit in there uh, so first of all uh, the assumption or the assertion that we do in fact have an anti Christian culture in the West uh, what uh, what do you base that assertion on?
1: Uh, thank you so much again for having me, Ryan. Uh, that's a good question. Our gold standard uh, for judging everything, and not just individuals and churches, but also societies and cultures, is the Word of God. And so when you examine the Word of God, you ask yourself, well, we know what a Christian is supposed to look like in the Old Testament, a godly person. Uh, We can know from reading Paul's epistles, for example, what a godly church is supposed to look like. But then we need to go farther than that, Ryan, and ask, well, does the Bible say anything about what a culture is supposed to look like? And the fact is, it does. We do have in the Old Testament an example of a godly commonwealth with ancient Israel. Uh, In suggesting that, we're not saying there's no change from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, but we are making the point that we do have a biblical example of a godly commonwealth. Now, we interpret that in light of God's revelation in the New Covenant, and we come up with a people of God beyond the walls of the individual family and the individual church. We come up, essentially, with a society that is governed by God's moral standards. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, we basically mean His holy law. And where do we find His law? We find it in the Bible. Of course, there are also creational norms that the Bible itself uh, sets out, but if we take that as our gold standard and we compare the West today, Canada, the United States, all of the West, with the standard of the law of God, we live in a rabidly uh, anti-Christian culture, anti-Christian society. I'd like to add quickly, it was not always that way. Uh, both the United States with its uh, history in Christian England, and uh, Canada Canada also with its association with the mother country England, were largely, never perfectly, but largely uh, Christian societies. It would have been um, 100 to, you know, 150, 200 years ago, uncontroversial uh, for most people in the West and those countries if you said, what's the basis for this society? And you said, well, some people would say, well, maybe vaguely democracy. Yes, but what's the real foundation? Most people would end up saying, well, I guess it's it's God's law. Even unbelievers would acknowledge this, that there has to be a foundation. Hmm. That, of course, is all gone today, as Francis Schaefer pointed out a number of years ago. So we had at that time at least a nominally Christian society, a recognizably Christian society, influenced by the basics of biblical law. Whereas today, we have a recognizably anti-Christian society. It's not that there's some sort of equilibrium of neutrality, that yes, Christianity might be okay, but secularism might be okay too. No, basically the elites of our culture are specifically anti-Christian, attempting to throw off uh, Christian standards and everything from, uh, from sexuality to the role of the state to uh, the nature of the family to uh, the role of the church and society, all sorts of other things, education, science, all sorts of other things. There's an intentional anti-Christian element designed to abandon and jettison our Christian heritage. It's on that basis that I say that we live in a distinctly anti-Christian culture.
0: Thanks for for clarifying that. You mentioned that uh we have had and that uh, that as Christians we ought to desire a society governed by God's moral standards uh, which you clarified is his word revealed in scripture. Yes. you also mentioned uh, the existence of creational norms yes. can you uh, can you comment on the relationship between and whether there's a, a hierarchy or a, a tension between, sort of, I guess, revealed in scripturated law and what, to what might be called the law of nature? Yes, well said. Uh, I don't
1: hold to what most people call natural law. Um, I'm not opposed to it when properly interpreted. But what most people mean by it historically is the attempt to frame uh, an ethics without specific appeal to what's called special revelation. The Bible— and Jesus Christ. I think anybody in the Bible, anybody in the Bible would have found that idea pure nonsense. Uh, It is true that God does reveal Himself in creation. Romans 1 is clear about that, and uh, Psalm 19, and a number of other uh, biblical texts. But it seems to me, Ryan, that this is always occurring hand in glove with special revelation. They're just sort of mutually reinforcing themselves. Paul, for example, I was reading again recently in Acts, he's uh, preaching uh, at Athens, and he speaks about what we would call natural revelation, creational revelation. And he says, all of you here are aware of this. This God you're serving, you you have an altar to an unknown God. You don't know who he is. Well, let me tell you who he is. He is the God of heaven and earth. But then at the very end, he says, and oh, by the way, he is going to judge men's hearts at the end by his son, whom he raised from the dead. Uh, So remarkable how you have this so-called general or natural revelation working uh, intertwined with uh, special revelation. So when we speak of creational norms, they're actually laid out, a number of them are laid out right there in Genesis 1 and 2. The creator-creature distinction, that God is distinct from his creation, not a part of his creation, though he works within it and is here all the time. Man created uh, imago Dei in the image of God second of all. uh, And third of all, man and woman, uh, both of them created equally in God's image, equally important, though as a complement to one another, not identical. Therefore, the Bible doesn't teach sexual egalitarianism. And then another, a fourth uh, example of this creational norm is what we call the cultural mandate. God said to Adam and Eve, uh, cultivate the earth for my glory. That, by the way, is man's primal calling, to cultivate the earth, to subdue it uh, for God's glory. And then uh, resting on the uh, seventh day, the the, the Sabbath. And so uh, these are, and there are others, by the way, Mm -hmm. inferential, are creational norms. But now notice what I did there, Ryan. I talked about creational norms, but I didn't say you can read these straight from creation itself without looking at the Bible. I referred to the Bible to tell us what these creational norms are. So uh, when I use the term creational norms, I'd also like to speak uh, sometimes of the cosmos. And I used uh, sort of the metaphor of the OS, the operating system. Uh, these creational norms are the OS uh, of, uh, of the universe. And uh, just as what we call the law of gravity is one, and if you attempt to break it, it will break you. Mm-hmm. The same is mm-hmm. true uh, with respect to uh, what some would call moral norms, for instance, biblical sexuality. You can live a sexually profligate life and violate these norms, but you can't get away with it. In other words, God has so constructed the ontology of the universe, the very being of the universe, to operate according to his standards, and if man turns his back on that, man suffers the consequences.
0: So is it uh, it fair to say then that it should not surprise us to observe that that nature operates according to ways... uh, Consistent with what we read in Scripture, but that uh, that we we take that that revealed word of Scripture as as axiomatic or as ontologically prior. Is that uh, is that fair? Yes, that's right. Um,
1: I would that is a hundred percent true. And the obverse of that, however, is that this these creational norms are the context within within which Scripture is possible at all. In other words, the creational norms were existent before Scripture was written down, obviously. Yes. But that doesn't mean—in other words, in that sense, there is a chronological priority, but that doesn't mean there's a logical priority. Both of them are necessary. Remember that even in the garden, though there wasn't what we call Scripture, there was still God's propositional revelation— uh, to yes. people who say, "Well, yeah. I think Adam and Eve all they needed was just sort of natural revelation." No, God didn't create Adam and Eve and say, "Oh, just look around and you'll find out everything you need to know." He didn't say that. Yeah, he gave no. them specific propositional commands. So that's why these two are always working together.
0: That's uh, that's a uh, terrific illustration. Uh, the second uh, the second thing that I notice as I read the uh, the mission statement as you've laid it out here is uh is that the the assumption that christians ought to be trying to change our present anti-christian culture and again this is this is something that uh would not have been controversial among evangelicals a, a generation or two ago but we get to we are we are in a context where it's it's common to hear that uh like we're just the world is just uh dissolving and we're going to wait to be to be redeemed and raptured out of here or even if it's not uh, not so extreme as that that uh there's this I what uh what i've heard described as a pilgrim mentality that uh, this world is not our home we're in the world but not of it these kinds of of statements that are that have some at least the text of it is found in scripture but the application is uh is in, totally inconsistent with uh, with what you're describing here.
1: That's right, Ryan. Uh, I mean, there are a number of reasons for that, and we could say a number of things, and we can always elaborate, but I'll start with this one. Let's think about that word um, evangelical. Uh, we basically know there's a hot controversy, what are evangelicals, but just in a mm-hmm. general sense, people who believe in the evangel, the euangelion, the gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ. And, of course, the Bible does teach that. It's a central fact uh, of the Word of God. But evangelicalism has always stressed the evangel. That's necessary. But I'd like to say this. It's not sufficient. I think what has happened is even from the very beginning, evangelicalism had this seeds of what we're seeing today and really its own erosion because it, it had a very high view of redemption, and we should have a high view of redemption, but it had a very low view of creation. It didn't really emphasize creation very much. By that, I don't mean simply six day creation or uh, the reality of Adam and Eve as historical figures, the universal flood. All of that is correct. But it's possible to believe that without having a creational worldview. Now, because of this, Ryan, most evangelicals didn't understand that the gospel and salvation and the good news is designed to restore and enhance creation. They haven't seen that. For them, basically, the gospel is a message of escape. The world is very evil. The world was, there was a beautiful garden, no sin, but Adam and he sinned, there was a curse placed on it, and the goal of the gospel is to get people converted, to save them out of this created world, and to prepare them for another world far away from here, that other world far away being heaven. And therefore, I believe they misunderstand statements in Hebrews and Peter about, as you said, being pilgrims or aliens. The Bible doesn't mean by that what they say it means by that, but essentially, the gospel becomes a message of escape. Now, as we read the Bible and we understand what creation is and the high calling of creation, the gospel is never a message of escape, but always a message of victory. Hmm. You see Hmm. it all over the scriptures. Uh, Let's just take quickly the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 1, where we read that Jesus Christ is our great high priest and who sat down at the right hand of the Father when he ascended. And all of these principalities are going to be made, made subject to him. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, he is uh, Lord over all things through his church. And in, of course, Colossians chapter 1, he's before all things, and by him all things hold together. And he uh, is the mediator of creation, Paul teaches in Colossians 1, and a number of other biblical texts. Unfortunately, modern evangelicals have pushed this idea frankly, not even understood the idea of the centrality of creation to the gospel message. For them, it is all about our responsibility to get as many people converted as we can, perhaps get them in the church, and to sort of hold the fort and hold out till Jesus comes. That's not the biblical understanding of the gospel, which is a message of victory, earthly victory leading to eternal victory, and we cannot postpone that victory to eternity. To eternity, Of course, it is true that the final definitive victory in salvation will come only in eternity, but that doesn't mean there cannot and will not be great extensive victory in time and history before the eschaton, that is, before the end.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, very, very well said. Uh, I wonder if, uh, if you notice a a connection between this emphasis on this emphasis on the gospel as a means of escape and a a concurrent emphasis on separate on, on drawing a separation a sharp separation between the law and the gospel.
1: Yes, that's a that's a great question, Ryan. Uh, not just the law and the gospel, but so-called nature and grace in uh, Roman Catholic theology. Well, Mm -hmm. essentially, Mm -hmm. in Protestant theology, the so-called law-gospel distinction is that Protestant version of the Roman Catholic nature-grace distinction. So uh, there are texts where Paul makes very clear that we are not saved or justified, specifically by law-keeping, and that the law was weak and that it could not justify us. And at a superficial reading, many Christians say, well, obviously the law is inferior. Worse, they misdefine the law. There's this prominent idea, and sadly, it really began with Luther, though developed uh, more otherwise, of seeing anything, any requirement in the Bible, any command as being law, and any promise as being gospel. So anytime God commands something, that's called law. And any time he promises something so that we don't have to do anything, that's gospel. Well, that idea is frankly false. Uh, the Bible is very clear that even in his commands, God is gracious. Uh, and with respect to the gospel, yes, the gospel is a promise, but the gospel also mag- makes demands. God now commands all men everywhere to repent. We're called. Uh, the Bible talks at least twice in the book of Romans about the obedience of faith. Faith itself is an act of obedience. So essentially, what uh, there are a number of dangers here, Ryan. One of them is that we get the notion that we trust in Christ alone for salvation, and he saves us, and we must be very careful about personal obedience, lest it undermines salvation by grace. Well, that doesn't seem to be a problem that Paul had. Uh, Paul was strictly stressed, obedience all the time. And he still understood the danger of trying to be justified by the law. But the fact that we're not justified by the law doesn't mean that the law doesn't have a role in our Christian life. In fact, the Bible is quite clear. The reason we're converted is so we would become holy, so that we would obey. Now, let's move on to the, the main part of your question. Is there a relationship between this escapist theology? There is. Because if you think about it, the notion, if, if we define the gospel simply reception. That's kind of what they want to do. The gospel is the reception. It's passive. They'll use that term a lot, Ryan. Passive. We simply passively receive the gospel, and then yes, we should obey the law, but we must always be kind of careful about that because that's active, and we need to be passive. That really cuts the nerve of applying the full Word of God, including the law of God, in all areas of life and thought. That say, was to undermine the gospel, which is all about our simply passive reception. But if you read the book of Hebrews, for example, all of the saints there are very active. By faith, Noah did this. By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, David did this. And of course, if we were to come into the New Testament era, the same is true of Peter and Paul and the others. By faith, they're very active in extending the gospel on the kingdom of God. So this law-gospel distinction has had terrible um Effects, terrible effects in uh, in culture, and wherever you see a very sharp law gospel distinction, as I have described it, uh, you'll tend to find people that are not very interested in uh, advancing the kingdom of God, fulfilling the cultural mandate, because they wrongly
0: interpret both gospel and law. Right? Can you can you uh, comment, or do you have any insight uh, historically, sociologically, like how? How we got to this point, uh, to the extent that you know, we've got major parachurch organizations, major missions agencies that have gospel in their name, and they, their emphasis is all about the gospel, but at the same time, we, whether implicit or explicit, there, there continues to be this, uh, this strong opposition to, to law.
1: Yes, well said. Um, there's a strong emphasis, as you pointed out there, on being gospel-centered. I like to tell people there's no problem at all with being gospel-centered, as long as you understand what the gospel really is. Mm-hmm. And uh, the problem uh, is that—and I've written on this, somebody can do a search on my article, Gospel to Salvation—is that they have tended to equate gospel with salvation. Now, that may seem heretical to say that, but I assure you it's not. Uh, salvation is soteria. Uh, you see, even see even in the first four letters in English, salve, the healing. It's the healing power that Christ came to die to heal us, to save us from our sins. That's a vital component of the gospel. But now, gospel is you and Gileon, evangel, that's something a little broader. Gospel is the good news. And the good news is that God in Christ and his atoning death and resurrection, his ascension, his reign, is overturning the curse that began in the garden thousands of years ago. Ah, well, that's much bigger than individual soteria. We would say soteriology, right? Individual soteriology. So individual soteriology is a vital part of the gospel, but it's not all of the gospel. So to say that you're gospel centered means would include meaning that you speak the truth of the Word of God against a radical against Darwinism, against uh, radical feminism, that uh, the church and individual Christians should be working to apply the faith in politics, uh, in education, creating Christian schools, Christian homeschools, uh, soundly Christian universities, applying the faith in science, uh, biblical truth as applies to science, and in vocation, and for that matter, in entertainment a Christian, distinctively Christian approach to entertainment. Now, some people would say, well, wait a minute, <laughs> that's, not, that's not the gospel. That's kind of an implication of the gospel. But if we define the gospel as the good news, and if the good news is that Christ is overturning sin and the effects of sin everywhere, then everywhere that sin is, everywhere, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, everywhere that sin is, Christ is at work, if that is the case, then all of those are legitimate works of the gospel. Unfortunately, when we talk about the gospel coalition or together for the gospel, that's not generally what they mean by that. They don't mean gospel. They mean soteria. One scholar put it this way, Ryan, this is very helpful. He says, I don't mind people who talk about uh, the gospel, but most of these people are not evangelicals. They're soterians. They want to be called evangelicals, but they're not really evangelicals. They're soterians, that is, they believe in individual soteriology. But individual soteriology, while an aspect of the gospel, is not the gospel in its
0: totality. That's uh, that's a very useful uh, definition or illustration. I haven't heard that before, but I like it. That uh, Andrew, that kind of brings us full circle uh, to this initial point we started with on transforming our present anti-Christian culture. Uh, The third third assumption implicit in that statement, uh, first, that we we have such an anti-Christian culture. Secondly, that Christians ought to be trying to change it. Uh, Thirdly, uh, you've preempted a little bit of this, but uh, the assumption that change is actually possible, that it is actually possible for Christians to effect change in society, uh, for the sake of and in the power of the gospel, so I wonder if we could, uh, cer- yes. you could bring us back to that and just talk about why we ha- why we have confidence that we can change it, and then how do we do it?
1: Well, thank you, Ryan. Yeah, so the Bible is full of promises, full of promises of gospel victory. In fact, uh, the very first gospel message of the Bible is found in Genesis three fifteen. Some people call it the Mm -hmm. Proto-Proto-Evangelium. That's the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the uh, head of the seed of the serpent. And essentially, that means that Jesus Christ, the the seed of the woman, would crush Satan's head, Satan and, of course, all of his minions. Now, the beautiful thing about that is people recognize this is a gospel sermon. And I love to think about the fact the very first gospel preacher in the Bible was God himself. There is God in Genesis 3.15. God himself the first gospel preacher. Well, what is that promise? Well, uh, the word sometimes translated bruise actually stronger than that. It's crush. The gospel is a very crushing event. Hmm. And uh, wherever it is, even when it happens tenderly externally, it crushes the old man, brings the new person into existence. Now we have graphic examples of that in cases like the apostle Paul. It was certainly very externally crushing in his case on the road to Emmaus, thrown off his horse. But in every case, even when there's a quietness and a tenderness, it's still very crushing uh, wherever it goes. And then, of course, there are the promises. uh, Oh, I could go into the book of Daniel, the promises that when Jesus Christ ascended to the throne, Daniel saw he was given his kingdom and then his minions, his, his own followers would serve him and the world would become theirs. And then the promises, all the promises of the New Testament and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Jesus Christ, who's presently reigning, will continue to reign until all of his enemies become his footstool. That language of the footstool is the most frequently uh, Old Testament passage, most frequently cited in the New Testament. Uh, It's basically an ancient Near Eastern metaphor. Whenever a, a military ruler, a commander, or even a king would gain a victory, he would take his counterpart, a king or a military rooter, and throw him on the ground and put his foot on his neck or his face, showing that I have supremacy. Essentially, what that's saying is that Jesus Christ and the power and preaching of the gospel will have supremacy in all things, and that is a great promise. Uh, Now, there are some that will say that this promise has been postponed, and yes, it will happen, but it won't happen until Jesus Christ returns to establish an earthly kingdom in a thousand years. Uh, The problem with that is that there are numerous passages in the New Testament that describe Jesus Christ as gaining His kingdom at His ascension rather than at His return. It's true that at at His return the kingdom will come only in its absolute fullness. But there's no question that Jesus Christ, when He ascended, took the throne. He sat on the right hand of the Father. That's a place of royal authority. Uh, In fact, that's what's going on, really, in Acts chapter 2. Many people stress the the controversy of speaking in tongues. That's not what's really going on in Acts 2. That's an aspect of it. What's going on is the king has ascended, and he's the king is, is throwing down as they were casting down gifts, the gifts of the Spirit on his people. The king is ruling and giving his church the strength to advance his kingdom by the power of the Spirit. Numerous other passages point out the, the gospel is a victory message. Unfortunately, Christians today live in pessimism. I'd like to add, Ryan, that It's true that all of us, we think about the psalmist, can go through times of difficulty. We have times of sickness, and we have times of death in the family, and certainly those are not times when we're filled with happiness. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, Christians do not live a life of pessimism. To live a life of pessimism is to live a life of defeat, and that's not a Christian life. The Christian lives in consistent victory and consistent joy because of the promises of the Word of God. And here's the key to that. We're going to win. People look around and they see a great deal of hostility, the terrible COVID lockdowns and the statism surrounding us and and the cultural Marxism of Black Lives Matter. And we have, of course, present uh, the terrible uh, war gone, going on in the Ukraine and people are very shaken. So Western culture, it seems to be just on its hinges and shaking. And I'll use that metaphor from Hebrews. Yes, there might be shaking, but the beautiful thing the book of Hebrews says is God is the one who does the shaking, and his shaking is advancing his kingdom. So when the shaking comes, when the great earthquakes come, the cultural earthquakes come, Christians never need fear. God is at work. This is his world. His world and his word and his world among his people by the power of his spirit will not fail. God is always at work, and he's doing things we cannot yet imagine. It's remarkable how Christians have a very shrunken, anorexic, pessimistic view of God's work in the world. They don't have confidence in the power of God. They don't have confidence in the Spirit of God, in the power of the Word of God, in the power of the church. I'll tell you what this is at root, Ryan. You got me into preaching today, buddy. What this it. is at, what it. This is at the root is unbelief. We live in unbelief. What a terrible sin this is. In the Bible, the sin of unbelief sends people to hell. The sin of unbelief robs people of joy. We need to live constantly in belief in the promises of the Word of God. There is an old gospel song, Standing on the Promises, but it's true. We're called to stand on the promises of the Word of God and march forward boldly. Sadly, the church hasn't done that. And that's one reason the church is defeated, because the church expects to be defeated. The church will again start to gain victory when the church expects to gain victory and trust the promises of the Word of God to have victory in time and history.
0: Preach, brother. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Thank you for that. Uh, You would you would mention a few things uh, that uh, that the gospel influences Uh, education. Stuck out to me er earlier in our conversation. Are these uh, are these some of the ways? Maybe you can expand on some of the ways that uh, that Christians actually hold forth that to that world changing gospel into the world.
1: Yes. Yeah, good question. You have really touched on one of the main ones, not the only one, but one of the main ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that at this period in history, one reason that the church and kingdom has suffered, a, at least in Western culture, a setback is because it surrendered education to mm-hmm. public education uh, several generations ago, but particularly since the 60s uh, to a secularized version of public education. As our children are being educated, and I don't mean, of course, just in universities and colleges. More important than that, of course, are in, the, uh, in various day schools. From a child, little children, they're being educated that there is no God, that his word is not true, that uh, we can be at war with the faith and that they are autonomous. And so many Christians, Ryan, oh, how foolish they are, think that two hours of uh, Sunday school or church are going to overturn 25, 30 hours uh, false anti-Christian teaching every week. That's just a fool's errand. Mm
0: -hmm. That's
1: utterly false. We're living today, a big reason we live in an anti-Christian culture is because of the anti-Christian education. Therefore, Christians must first of all get away from this secularized public education, train their children in strong homeschools or very strong and sound Christian schools. This also means uh, starting very sound uh, uh, Christian universities, uh, Christian colleges, and I might add Christian vocational schools. We need a large number of Christian vocational schools. Christians need to redeem education. But I'd like to mention a couple of four if we have time, Uh, a couple more, Ryan, if we have time.
0: We've uh, we've got all the time we want.
1: Uh, All right. I think one area that is hugely influential, that Christians have just abandoned for foolish reasons is the arts and entertainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christians have put a lot of emphasis on politics, and there's no question that politics is important. But if I must choose between electing a devout Christian to political office and having a Christian uh, produce movies or produce TV shows, I don't mean with just telling little Bible stories, but articulating a Christian worldview, those TV shows and those movies are a thousand times more influential than anything any politician can do. We That's look at right. the modern entertainment that our, our children see everywhere. It is saturated by everything that we despise. The anti-Christian worldview is at work almost everywhere. Now, I must say there are exceptions. I thank God for a number of Christian producers, movie producers, and actors, and so on. But they are far, far too few. In my lifetime, the quality of Christian movies and acting has gotten much better. again they're far too few and this might sound odd it is remarkable how many christians are able to pull out their wallet and write a thousand dollar check for a missionary to go to africa but they would never pull out their wallet and uh write a thousand dollar check to a christian artist to help him or her to articulate a christian approach to art to influence culture that is a false and a mistaken idea that's one reason throughout the 20th century we had multiple millions, no doubt, all, t- all told, billions of dollars sending missionaries. And I am far from opposed to that. Thank God we need we need more Christian missionaries. Mm-hmm. But we also need missionaries in the arts and missionaries in entertainment. And one reason that the faith, is, uh, at least at this point, has suffered great setbacks is because uh, the arts and, and uh, modern entertainment have uh, not been the province of, uh, of Christian concern. There are a number of other areas, of course, in science or technology. Uh, technology is uh, remarkable; it's a great gift from God. Uh, yep. Sadly, there are some Christians that are technophobes, but that's not a Christian notion. Technology is wonderful. The technology we have now is wonderful. So many Christians will say, "Well, look at all the evil to which it's been used—pornography and so on." But that's true of any technology. Oh, yeah. Anything that anything God produces, Satan can and will and will try to pervert. Uh, this needs to be used for the glory of God. Uh, one problem we have today, Ryan, I'm sure you have thought of this, and I'm sure you guys at Ezra have talked about it. You know, with all of the cancel culture on uh, Facebook on Twitter today, we need Christians that are that could produce massively viable alternative platforms. Now, we're not in a position this day as I sit here to do that, but we need to be thinking about creating all sorts of vast technological alternatives that can compete with all of these uh platforms and all of these other forms of media that are currently harnessed by, um, by Satan and his minions. So those are three specific ones, but on down the board, whether it comes to education or science uh, and uh, entertainment and vocation, ec- I could mention quickly economics, socialist economics is contra-Christian economics. Mm-hmm. We need a strong emphasis, e- emphasis on economic liberty, to Christianize economics doesn't mean to make Christian trinkets and make Christian bumper stickers. It means to return to a Christian approach to economics with a strongly stressing individual enterprise. The virtues of the free market, not just utilitarian, not just that we make more money, but it creates virtuous people. Free markets create hardworking, wise, provident people. Socialists, the problem with socialism isn't just the dislocation and the theft of money. That, of course, even deeper, it creates bad people. It creates people with very bad traits, people that are not responsible, people that are not wise, people that are not diligent, people that do not trust God. That's the evil, the main fundamental evil of socialism. So on this and other
0: things, Christians must be working to influence all of culture. No, I love that. I totally agree. And I think, uh, I think the point you made about, uh, about technology and, uh, social media technology in particular, that, uh, we're not just trying to make, you know, a, uh, a diet version of whatever's popular. Uh, right. we're not just trying to it's, uh, you ever go into like a Lifeway store and say, Oh, you like, uh, you like Pearl Jam. You might like these other artists. <laughs> right. like, well, no, like the, uh, that kind of puts uh, that's that whole kind of thinking I, I understand it on some level but it's symptomatic of the problem that you're describing that uh that we we've been letting the world set the standard and then kind of trying to make uh, christian light or sound alike or look alike kind yes. of things ryan
1: that's that's the thinking about the utter antithesis of this let's look back historically Nobody would say, when you look back, let's think of Bach, devout Christian Protestant man. Bach himself set the standard. Nobody would say, well, if you like Bach, maybe this is sort of a Christian version of Bach. You don't need a Christian version of Bach. He is the Christian version. Uh, And of course, he's an extreme example. But there are a number of, of other cases historically of people like that. So yes, Christians need to stress quality of work such that we're not simply imitative. That's dangerous.
0: Wow. Wonderful. Well, Andrew, it's been uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you, and always uh, always good to connect. We pray for you for the work of uh, of CCL. Uh, we're grateful for your uh, your fellowship and your uh, your intellectual participation with us here uh, at the Ezra Institute, and we're really looking forward to uh, to having you with us in Golden at the Runner Academy. Looking forward to that, Ryan.
1: appreciate you guys. And uh, as I told Dr. Boot years ago, uh, not long after he had started, um, Ezra, we're joined at the shoulder and at the hip. Um, CCL is sort of the American version of uh, Ezra, and Ezra is sort of the Canadian version of, uh, and larger than Canada, version of CCL. So that's going to continue, by God's grace.
0: Well, we'll, uh, we'll pray for that. We'll look forward to it. Andrew Sandlin has been my uh, my guest today. I'm Ryan Harris again on the Ezra Institute's podcast for Cultural Reformation, reminding you that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To God be the glory, and we'll look forward to being with you again next week.